Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. with us for any part of the summer. We've been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this book called James in the New Testament. And James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was, he was a skeptic. He didn't always believe in his brother as the heavenly uh, Messiah. It was this whole thing. But there's a crazy experience, and he, and he knows Jesus is who he says he was and gives his life to him and all that good stuff. And so this book of James has just been a hard-hitting real application of, like, here's what a life of faith looks like, and here's how to do it, and what in all these principles to live by. And it's been so good, but as your pastor, I've got to tell you, I'm so ready to be done. Because it has, it has been good, it has been awesome, but, like, it is blunt, it is to the point, it is extreme, and it's, just, it's been so, so good. But I thought this is, this is the best way to explain it. My wife works at an assisted living facility, and one of their staff members started a Bible study on James. And so she, as the proud pastor's wife of her handsome, dapper, good-looking husband, she goes, Hey, my, my, my husband just actually started, or is just finishing a sermon series on James. And she goes, Oh, yeah, i got to tell you this. One of the residents came up to her after they, the, they start off the first week. They kick off James chapter 1, and he comes up to her and says, You know what? James is summed up perfectly in Proverbs 12.1. And she goes, Oh, cool. Yeah. Like, doesn't, doesn't have it memorized. Didn't, I sure didn't. So she goes back and looks at this. And look at what Proverbs chapter 12, 1 says. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Is that not James? Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Just, just kind-hearted, nice, soft, good language here. So next time you say, don't use stupid in church, it's in the Bible. So now I have a leg to stand on. And it's not even a weird translation. It's perfect. But it, it perfectly sums it up because James, like I said, it, it's, just, it's raw and it's real. And it's been eight or nine weeks of just really good stuff, of some good things that I, I, even as I've preached them, I've gone, how can I adopt this back to my life? How can I make this real to me? How can I do all these different things? How can I grow as a husband? How can I grow as a father? How can I grow as a believer in Jesus? Because really that kind of goes into everything. When you grow as a believer in Jesus, you become a better whatever, a better worker, a better spouse, a better father, mother, whatever it is. And so it's been really, really good, but my heart, as you know, is for the people of St. Francis, East Bethel, Oak Grove, and everything beyond. My heart is for people to have this encounter with Jesus that is real. And the thing with James is it's been really, really good principles to live by. But I don't want it to just be a religious course of here's how to look like you're a good person. Here's how to look like you're doing the right things. I want us to have that real legitimate connection with Jesus. And so my pastoral heart has been struggling right now because I want people to understand that James is all about doing, which is really good. But Jesus wants us to be sometimes. He wants the doing to become part of us being a believer in him and being his son or his daughter. And so it's been so, so good, but I'm excited to finish it today because like I said, I have a series just chalked up for next week that I'm really excited about. But... James does come out and ties it all together with a nice little bow here, and it's fantastic. So are you ready to finish this book with me this morning? Are you ready? Are you ready? I love it. James chapter 5, verse 7. 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Verse 10, brothers and sisters. He's sure got a lot of brothers and sisters. Let me tell you what. As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If you were to explain this little section in one word, what would it be? Patience. He says it's so stinking much, but I think it goes without saying that the purpose of this is to just be content in this season of discontentment. <laughs> Sounds easy, right? No, it's not. It's terrible. When you're, cho- when you're told to be patient, you become impatient all the more. If you're standing in line and someone says, just be patient, I'm like, I was patient, but I'm not now. It's, it's, it's annoying. It's, it's like someone who, who said, um, my sister, I love her to death, but if she's hungry, get the heck out of the way. She's the kindest, sweetest person, but when she's hungry, like that hangry just comes unleashed. And so one time we said, maybe you should have eaten before. Like if you, if you would have eaten a snack before we left the house, it would have been fine. I fear for my life. So here James is saying, hey, I know you're going through a bunch of stuff. I know that you're going through suffering. It's such a strong word. You're suffering, but just be patient. I don't want to punch him. Like that, 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 that's the worst advice in the world. But at the same time, it's so, so true because there's opposition and there's suffering. And there's things that we will experience in our lives that are not fun. And being patient in them is the last possible thing we want to do. But as promised, James talks about this guy named Job, J-O-B, all right? So if you go into the Bible and go to the Old Testament, there's a book of the Bible called J-O-B. I always thought it was the book of Job. Like, that's, that's an interesting, interesting book. It has nothing to do about jobs. Why is this in here? And then I, someone said Job, and I was like, oh, that makes a whole bunch more sense. I mean, Job was really just like James in the sense of he, had a, he wrote a letter, a biography about his life in the Old Testament. And so I kind of want to just walk you through Job because I think a lot of times when we hear suffering, we immediately go to physical torture or like someone's suffering or, you know, we think of all these really, really strong things. And that is the, the fact. But at the same time, I don't know of many people in here who are going through physical torture on a daily basis. Parents kind of you fit this bill, but not always. People nowadays don't go through physical suffering, but we also go through these seasons of tribulation and suffering waiting for something, something we really, really want. Infertility is a really big thing. A lot of people go through infertility, and that suffering state is something that kind of boils beneath the surface. That's really, really difficult. Some people are in a, a relationship that's very, very suffocating sometimes. It can be, it feels like we're suffering in silence. It, it doesn't even have to be that, that drastic. Maybe you're just waiting for something in your life, waiting for that next job offer, waiting for your house to clear, waiting for, to go to this next stage of your life, and it feels like you're suffering And so while it's different in the Bible context, it's the same message. And Job, as Tim Hawkins so lovingly introduced us, was um, no stranger to suffering. 
So Job was a good man. Job loved Jesus or loved God. Jesus wasn't on the scene yet. He loved God. It was all good. He had a bunch of money, a bunch of kids, a, a, a wife. I was going to say a good wife, but she wasn't a good wife, apparently. He had it all going on. He had the picture-perfect idea of what life was supposed to look like. And so Job chapter 1, chapter 2 comes into the, into the picture, and all of a sudden it, it, it kind of transports the reader into this meeting up in heaven. And so the angels come before God to kind of engage with him, and all of a sudden Satan sneaks in there. And God's like, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, I've just been walking around the earth, patrolling around the earth, and this, there's this guy down there. And God goes, yeah, Job, he's the man. He loves me. He's awesome. He's great. Job is my, like, that beaming son that you're just super proud of. And Satan goes, just so you know, God, the only reason Job actually, like, is a good man and loves you is because he's got everything. He's got the fame. He's got the wealth. He's got all of it going on. If you took all that away, I guarantee you, he would not love you. And God goes, all right, bet. Let's go for it. Let's go after it. Let's, let's put, I'll put my money where my mouth is. And this is what God says in Job chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And before I even go on, I think this is a small side tangent I need to also understand. I want us to take note that Satan had to get the power from God before he could mess with him. So next time you feel like Satan just messing with your life, I want you to understand he doesn't have enough power to overrule what God wants to do in your life. So he had to ask for power to do anything. And so when we feel like we're up against the wall, God isn't going to come through. But I want to continue because that's not the purpose here. Satan does his worst. He kills Job's kids. He kills all of his livestock, which in this day and age, your livestock was your wealth. Your animals were your money makers. They were everything. And so he took his kids, all of his livestock. He, he covered him with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And the Bible is graphic. It says he took a shard of pottery and started itching his body because it was so itchy and so uncomfortable. This is like poison ivy on steroids. This is, this is uncomfortable, like the type of itch where you literally go crazy. He has everything taken away from him, everything, absolutely nothing was left. And so Job's wife, who remains living, goes up to him and says, how in the world can you keep loving God? How in the world can you keep praising God? And the Bible says that Job did not sin in what he said. He did not curse God and say, God did all this to me, as God said he would. Like I said, suffering in our day and age takes all kinds of different shapes and forms. Our minds immediately go to this physical, but we can suffer from all kinds of things. Like I mentioned, infertility, relationships, seasons of waiting, seasons of where you just feel dry and torn down and, and, and isolated and all this different stuff. That insurmountable stress where you just, you come home and you are just like, feels like you are just happy carrying a, a 10-pound bag on your, on your back all the time. You're tired. You're worn out. The emotional toil, maybe you're waiting for a medical diagnosis. The doctors say it could be this, and it could be that, and it could be that, and, and some of the options are far worse than others. And so you're, that waiting for the diagnosis feels like you're suffering sometimes because you just want to know. And what that diagnosis is is going to dictate what your next weeks, months, and years look like. It's tough. 
heartbreak and grief when you lose someone or something. I don't have to dive in here, but I think all of us can understand what it looks like when we're suffering through something, when we're going through something really, really tough. And the longer we're in these seasons, the longer that we have to go through this season of suffering, the more the questions come up. Is God really real? Does God really love me? Am I really doing the right things? The the more we go through these seasons, the more we get worn down, the less energetic we are to actually engage back with God and with other people. And for good reason. It's tough. If you're suffering through something, it's very, very difficult. We feel like we're dry. We feel like we aren't just feeling God like we used to. We start to have these questions and these doubts, and it just, it's just one big puddle of we just feel like we just have to wait this out. Suffering. If you're an avid fan of Minnesota sports teams, you know what I'm talking about. At this point, it's almost a verified form of torture. Every season, you're like, all right, cool. We got the right team. We got the right schedule. We're golden. We make it to the playoffs. We're golden. And then choke. Every team, every sport. I've considered moving multiple times purely because of our sports teams. New mercies. We need new, more than just new mercies for our Minnesota sports teams. No Packers. I need to move on. This is, this is going downhill. Good grief. Talk about suffering, having a church with Packers fans in it. Holy cow. <laughs> Sacrifice them. We need to move on. Holy buckets. James' instructions are to be patient and stand firm. Good. Okay. Being patient and standing firm is probably the last thing you want to do when you're going through seasons of disunity. It is the farthest thing from your mind. I've noticed when I am in a season of just going through stuff, I'm like just a jittery boy even more. I'm like Jojo the Wonder Boy bouncing off the walls trying just to keep my mind and my hands busy. But James is saying, get comfortable, be patient, endure. And he, he equates it to the rain. I'm going to get into a little bit of just kind of some Bible nerdiness for a second. I went to Israel in uh, May of 2017. It is stinking hot. Like really, really stinking hot. Like there was one day, it was 109 degrees on my phone. I pulled up my phone in the sun to look at the weather and it shut down because it was so hot. It's warm. It's really, really warm. So what happens is... This was written 2,000 years ago. They didn't have the nice big sprinklers in the cornfields that spray your car 60 miles an hour down the road and make you feel like your windshield's going to break. There's no irrigation. There's no nothing. You are just at the mercy of the elements when you're farming in Israel. And so what happened is they mentioned they have a, a fall rain and a spring rain. The autumn rain is called Yorah which actually was the first rain of the year because all summer it's completely dry, it's completely hot. But the first rain in their form of August, which was, or I'm sorry, their form of autumn, which was around November, the first rain comes and softens the ground and makes it able to be plowed so you can put seeds in the ground. Then they go through their winter season, which is about December to March, where it just rains periodically. And then here's what I found super, super interesting. Their spring rain is called Malkosh. And this rain, the last rain of the year, is actually what ripens the crop to be harvested. Without that last rain, they can't get ripened crops. Super, super interesting to me. 
Not that I find farming super, super interesting, but what I think is so interesting is that God actually builds in periods of waiting. He builds in periods of waiting. He softens the ground. He puts the seeds in, and all of a sudden, now you have to wait. The farmer had to sit and wait for his crops to come up through the ground and just hope and pray that the rain comes. And then finally, at the end of the spring, it comes, and here comes the last rain. Can you imagine if we didn't have waiting periods? God builds in waiting periods for everything. Can you imagine if we as humans had the gestational period of an insect? You find out on Monday, hey, congratulations, you're pregnant. And then next Monday, your kid is here. Can you imagine that? I had nine months to prepare for both my kids to come. And when they got here, I was still clueless, completely clueless. Where is our bag? How do I change a diaper? Why is this thing still crying? How do I make it stop crying? Why is that solution not working? Why does it poop so much? And why is it down on their foot? How did that happen? There are things as a parent, you just, and it doesn't matter how much time you have, you still don't have the understanding of being what it is like to be a parent. But can you imagine if it was from nine months to a year? Dads would have no hair left. They'd pull it all out in the first week. We are used and built to this idea of having to wait for things. I find in life so often God will soften the soil of our heart and drop a dream in our heart and in our spirit that will take years in the making to come into fruition. Why? Because the things that are really worthwhile take a little bit to mature. It takes some time. That growing period does something to us. To go along with James' analogy in here, I think there are things that if we just got them right away, we wouldn't appreciate them for what they are. If we got them as soon as we wanted them, we wouldn't be able to have this this gratification of having something come our way. And even more so, I think there are things that God drops in our heart that have to wait a little bit because he has to work some things out in us before we can have them. I vividly remember I was sitting on my couch at home in 2014. And I had this idea that I felt like I was just sitting, I was praying, and God was doing something in my heart. And the whole previous year, been one of the toughest, darkest moments in my life. And I all of a sudden heard from from people, and it's this this idea, this dream in my heart, that maybe I'm supposed to not be a dentist and become a pastor. 2014. It was through the next three years of waiting to become a pastor, going through Bible college, doing all these things, where God really started to develop me in ways that I didn't even understand. Becoming a person who was reliant upon him. Becoming a person who was able to see people and see things differently. That three-year waiting period, I firmly believe, was something that I needed in order to become who I am today. God will drop dreams in your heart that might never come to fruition. Not, Not never, but might take a long time to get there because he has your best interest in mind. He wants to develop you, develop your character, develop your heart. And can I tell you, when that harvest finally comes, it is very, very sweet. It is worth the wait. It is worth everything. I joke, if you followed me on on social media a couple weeks ago, I was on a mission trip, and my wife had had my truck for the weekend. And just so you know where this truck is at, I've had a dream to have a truck for probably 10 years. 
The last six months, I would spend probably five hours a week. She's shaking her head no. It was way more. I looked at trucks all the time. Our, our days off would be going to drive through the truck lots. Like, hey, Ellis, what do you think of that one? That one's a sweet one. Daddy will never have that one because daddy's a pastor. <laughs> but I had this truck. I had this, this dream of a truck for so long that now every single time I get into it, I'm so thankful and aware that God comes through in his promises. And that waiting period made me appreciate my truck so much more. Even when my wife smokes a bird and gets the bird stuck in the grill and has to have the neighbor pull it out and maybe close the garage door on it. Maybe. Can't be confirmed. The farmer would plant his seed in the ground as soon as God softened the soil and have to wait. He had to hope and pray that God would bring the rain to make the crops grow. I can imagine there were moments where he had all the rain coming. He's like, yes, this is awesome. But I also think there's probably seasons where there's been a drought for 10 days. And you see the little sprouts in his ground shriveling and becoming dry and going, God, God, are you, if I don't have this, I die. If I don't have this, I don't have any money. If I don't have this, we don't eat. God, would you bring the rain? God, bring the rain. God, it's been 10 days. It's been 11 days. It's been 12 days. It's been 13 days. God, are you there? God, are you coming? God, we need the rain. And when the rain comes, I am convinced that the farmers of of the first century had more faith than I will ever have because they were at the mercy of God bringing the rain for everything. And I can't imagine the relief and the joy and the connection when the very thing that they prayed for came into existence. Time and time and time again. They had so much faith because they went through this idea of going through suffering and a struggle. James ends his entire book in chapter 5 the same way he begins by saying, consider it, chapter 1 is consider it pure joy when you encounter troubles of all kinds. Chapter 5 is stay patient and stand firm in suffering for you will yield valuable crop. The, the purpose is the same. Take something that's difficult and spin it into something positive. That's the whole purpose. He's trying to understand and make us understand that your struggle, your strife, your suffering is not wasted. It's part of the process. It's part of making you the person that you are. It's part of strengthening you and giving you that tenacity, that perseverance, that drive. If we got everything that we want all the time, we'd just be like Job. And Satan would come and go like, the only reason you love God is because you have all this stuff. But when we go through suffering, when we go through perseverance, when we come out on the other side, we are stronger. We are more assured. We are more faithful. We are more everything. Going through the seasons. So your struggle and your strife is not wasted you have to stay the course so i'm gonna give you a little bit of spoiler here's how job ends after 42 chapters of going through suffering in depth all of his friends all of his family saying job god's not coming back you might as well forget about him he is he just write him off he's 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 killed everything they're blaming god for what's happening and and job is just he's worn down he's beat down he's not engaging much but he is just done yet he stays the course and at the very end the bible says he has twice as much everything he had before god restored everything double twice as many kids twice as much wealth he lives to his 140 he saw the fourth generation of his kids this is all in job chapter 42 
The Bible said he died an old man full of years. But more than that, I want you to see what I think what is the biggest blessing in all of this. Job is having this moment with God at the very end of all this suffering, and he says this, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That's powerful. So many times I think we hear God, we hear about God, we come to church and it feels like, okay, I might kind of know that God does things and God exists. But when you see God and you experience God, it changes things. It changes you. And a lot of times we have to go through suffering to fully see him. Because when we are at the mercy of the world, when we're at the mercy of our suffering, our need for him becomes all the more apparent. The farmers had no choice but to trust God. They couldn't do anything. If the rain didn't come, they didn't have a backup option. There was no irrigation. There was no water supply. They truly had to rely on God. And so I imagine a seasoned farmer, a farmer that was old in his years, just had the most faith in the world because he knew, I don't know how it's going to look. There might be seasons of dryness. We might get a ton of rain at the start. We might get a ton of rain at the end. But no matter what, God's going to come through because he had been through it before. He had been through the seasons of difficulty. When you experience God, it changes you. And therein lies the mission of our church, to see people come alive in Christ. My prayer for our church, for our community, is that very thing that Job said. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Whether you've grown up to church your whole life, whether you hate church and have had been burned by it, I, my prayer is that people will can say that I have seen God move. And here's how. Here's how. Full, full disclosure, this whole idea of spinning something negative and something positive is something I am really, really bad at. I am pessimistic and skeptic by nature. It's awesome. It's awesome. No, it's not, because I, I will just beat things into the ground. And so this whole idea of just spinning something positive has, has been something I've struggled with. But James doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, hey, just be patient, just stand firm, just you'll get through it, it'll be okay, just think positive thoughts, think good vibes, just, just do what you're thinking. Like, he doesn't just leave it there. He finishes his entire book. This is the last section of the entire book of James, and I truly think he saved the best for last. This is the secret sauce. James chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Something I haven't told you up to this point is James had a nickname. He had many nicknames, actually. The first one was James the Just. Because he was all about justice and, and doing things that were right. You would see people who are really beaten down and in and, and, and poverty and say, that's not right that you're treating them that way. He was just that way. He was also known as James, the brother of Jesus, for obvious reasons. But here's, can you imagine this? Here was his last and final nickname. Old Camel Knees. If I'm walking down the street and someone says, hey, old Camel Knees, I'm like, what? That just sounds insulting. 
Doesn't it? It sounds like it, it should be something demeaning, but they called him Old Camelies because the 4th century writer named Hegesippus is the one who, who came out and, and explained this one of his nicknames. And they called him that because his knees were so swollen and so callous because he spent so much time on his knees praying. To the point that his knees were swollen. He looked like a camel because his knees were just flat and wide and, and just enlarged because he spent so much time praying. To the point that when he is actually killed, he's actually killed for his faith. He is on the knee, on, on the ground praying for the people as they are trying to kill him. James is a man of prayer. He was all about prayer. And so while he gives all of this stuff, all of these practical applications for five chapters about how to here's live for Jesus and have a life of faith, he, just, he sums up by saying, in all seasons, in all emotions, in everything, just pray. If you're in trouble, pray. If things are going well, pray. Sing songs of praise. If you need healing, pray. If you need forgiveness, pray. Prayer, 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 prayer. And he, the last part of it is he talks about this man named Elijah. And Elijah could pray. Elijah prayed that the land would stop raining, have a drought so that people would recognize their need for God. And just like that, a three and a half year drought comes. But then in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah prays seven times for God to bring back the rain and it comes back. Prayer is powerful. And in, in true fashion, a way of to end this, I think as we finish fishing with Gramps series here, I think prayer is a lot like fishing, actually. If it shows you how much I've fished this summer, I have no line on my rod, but it probably is, is for the best. But I think a lot of times fishing can be equated to prayer because I think a lot of times if you're fishing and a true fisherman understands that if you just cast out once, close your bail and just wait for the bobber or if you're, if you're bass fishing, if you just cast out once and don't catch anything, go, well, that stinks, better go back in, you're not going to catch a whole lot. If you just cast out once and just call it a day, right? A true good fisherman knows how to find where the fish are and continue to cast and cast and cast and cast and cast and cast. And it might take a while to catch a fish. You might catch it on the first cast. You don't, you never know. But that's the true part of a fisherman is you just keep on casting. See where I'm going with this? You might pray for something for years and it might never come, but don't stop praying about it because God will answer your prayer if you believe it. You might pray for something and all of a sudden the next day it's solved. It just all depends. Ultimately, their authority lies with God. But here's what I think is really, really interesting is that what are you fishing for? Because if you're fishing for a sunfish, if you're fishing for panfish, if you're fishing for something small, just a little hook and a little jig will be just fine, right? This tiny little hook, if you're just looking for small sunfish, golden. It'll be perfect. But if you're looking for a muskie, if you're looking for a large mouth bath, if you're looking for something, this isn't going to do the trick for you. Because what you're casting isn't big enough. If you want to see a big fish get up close and personal, if you want to see something big come to your boat, if you want to land a big fish, you need to start casting bigger lures. You need to start looking for bigger things. 
That's truly what you're going to see. If you're only fishing and throwing that jig, you're going to see a whole bunch of small things, but you'll never see that 50-inch muskie even come close to your boat. He's not interested. But you start throwing this around, all of a sudden you're going to start seeing some really big fish. The type of fish that make you wonder if you ever want to go swimming again. I think a lot of times, as Bethany, one of our amazing staff members, preached a great message a few weeks ago about dreaming God-sized dreams. That's fantastic. We need to dream God-sized dreams. We also need to pray God-sized prayers. If we are only praying for small things and praying, God, would you just please help me with this situation? Would you please just, you know, maybe this would be great. If we're just praying small things, we're only going to see God do small things. But if we start praying bold prayers, we start praying for big things, we're going to see big things. Do you know why? Not because our ultimately the power lies with our prayers, but the reality is that prayer changes our perspective. When you pray big prayers, it's not a matter of you persuading God to do big things. What you're doing when you pray big prayers is saying, God, I am looking for you to do big things. When you pray, you are changing your eyes onto him. I love, love, I don't have time to get into this story, but Elijah, when he's praying for that rain to come back, he goes up onto the top of the mountain, gets on his knees and prays, God, would you please bring the rain? And he, he asked the servant, hey, is there a cloud coming from, this, from the Sea of Galilee yet? Nope, not. Okay, God, please bring the rain. Is, is it coming? Nope, it's not. Seven times he prays and prays and prays, and he doesn't move for those seven times. And finally, in the seventh time, the servant goes, I see a cloud the size of a hand. And Elijah tells his servant and tells King Ahab, y'all better start running because there's a whole storm coming. And with that, sure enough, the whole land of Israel gets doused with the storm. When we pray, it changes what we're looking for. When you pray for something long enough and deep enough, all of a sudden your heart starts to change. I realized, church, that I had a bunch of big dreams that I want for our church. But God, this week as I was preparing this message, said, Derek, I need to start praying for him. I think a lot of times what happens is we're scared that our prayers aren't going to work. We're scared that if we pray this and it doesn't happen, then, then either God's not real or, or, or maybe we're doing something wrong. I'm scared to pray that my husband will be cured of cancer. I'm scared to pray that my marriage can be restored. I'm scared to pray that my kid who hates church will come to know Jesus because if it doesn't happen, I'm going to be disappointed and they're going to think that God's not actually real. We're scared to pray big prayers because we're scared he's not going to answer them. But when you pray big prayers, you start to look for God moving in ways you didn't realize before. So to come full circle, church, I'm asking us to be a church that is prayerful. I want us to start praying bold prayers for your life, for your marriage, for your kids, for your job, for your employees, for your employer, for this community. I am praying things that I can't possibly imagine. I am praying for things that I don't even know how it's going to be possible. When we talk about drilling a well at $35,000, do you know how impossible that is for, for someone like me or for a church our size? It feels impossible, right? But when God drops that God-sized dream, we need to accompany it with God-sized prayers because he's going to do it and he can do it. He can do the impossible. And so this morning, as we finish up James chapter five, I want to show you what God is. I love this. I, 
A lot of times I will do my own personal devotion, personal Bible reading apart from what I'm preaching on because I want to be between the Lord and I. But sometimes he intersects these things and I think it's so, so cool. That last night I was finishing the book of Philippians for me. I know I'm talking about prayer today and, and last night I'm, I'm going to bed and, and, I'm, and I'm doing all this stuff and I, I just, I love when God intersects this and he goes, Philippians chapter four, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God and here is the kicker and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you pray to God, there's an exchange that happens. You exchange your anxious thoughts, your what am I going to do about this for peace that doesn't make sense. When you pray, God, would you heal or do something impossible in the situation? You go from being anxious to having peace. Because you know the God who can bring the rain is on your side. Church, I believe with every ounce of my heart that this church is going to experience some really cool things in the next months and in years. But I think it starts right here. It starts by praying and asking God to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to give us peace, to give us the eyes to see. Because if we just go around trying to do it on our own strength, we're going to be like a bunch of blind, aimless motives. But when we are intentional and say, God, would you help us and guide us? He's going to take us that way. So don't be surprised if I start asking us to pray as a church for things. Because here's what I'm doing. I'm praying for you and your families. I'm praying for our community. I feel this pull that we need to start praying bigger and it's going to start with us and our family. We're going to pray for God to move in our community and guess what? He's going to move. It's going to be fun. So here's the fun part. When you pray, your eyes change. You don't just hear about God anymore. You see him. And that's fun. That's really fun. And you see God moving. Especially when it's in your own life too. That's pretty great. Will you pray with me today? Jesus, you can do the impossible. Your word is full of you doing miraculous impossible things so God today for those listening for those watching for those in this place who are facing an impossible situation an impossible relationship an impossible medical issue an impossible financial issue an impossible physical issue those in this room God who walked in feeling anxious and defeated I pray Jesus that they would know that you are with them that you are behind them and there is nothing that is too big or too hard for you So God, would you be with them? Would you give them that peace that transcends all understanding? But God, as James says, God, prayer is not just for requests, but it's for forgiveness as well. So Jesus, for those in this room who want to make it right with you, who maybe are far from you, who want to get close to you and want to experience you in this way, for those, God, in this room who are close to you, but we still make mistakes because we all are sinners, 
just pray, Jesus, that you would forgive us, and you do. We thank you for that. We pray for that, but we also praise you for that in the same sentence because that forgiveness is already there. Jesus, you're up to something big. We know that. We've sensed that. Would you lead us and guide us into praying that into existence? Because the power, Lord, is not in our prayers, but it's in our position before you. And we thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Would you be with us today? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Can we give God some praise? This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.